we have come to worship is indeed not just, is not just a, a mini, uh, a small God of a small tribe. He is the Lord of the nations. Well, this morning as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading from verse 1 through 7. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, if you're visiting us this morning, we're so glad that you're with us. Uh, you may find a Bible in the chairs in front of you. Uh, they are black looking. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one of our Bibles in the pews. We'd love for you to have it, take it home and read it. Uh, if you are opening this Bible, you may find this passage on page number 573. And as you turn your Bibles to our passage, I want to remind you that we are currently going through the book of Isaiah, uh, segment by segment. And today we are actually doing a little bit of a cul-de-sac pause on a passage we have already preached on last week. There's something so powerful and so rich about these particular verses, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 9, that I chose this week not to go further into chapter 9 and 10, uh, but to stay one more Sunday and look at this particular passage as we are looking at a message that speaks about from darkness to light. Here's the word of the Lord for us. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glory as the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you join me in prayer asking God to bless the preaching of his word for us? O oh Lord, You know where darkness still dwells. We pray that your light will shine in darkness even today. Speak to our hearts, we pray. Dispel the doubts, dispel the fears, dispel the rebellion, dispel the ignorance. Father, dispel the darkness, we pray, so that indeed the light of Christ may shine clear in our hearts this morning. We pray that in the name of Jesus, we pray that for the glory of Jesus, 
And we pray that you would do so through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 are a passage in which God had spoken to his people, encouraging his people to trust not their own schemes, not their own plans, not human strategy, but to trust in the Lord. We saw how that call to trust in the Lord was given to Ahaz in chapter 7, and Ahaz chose not to trust in the Lord. Ahaz chose to, to, to rely rather on his plans and his way of getting out of the trouble uh, that the nation was facing. God has asked Isaiah to speak not only to Ahaz, but to speak to the people. And God gave Ahaz a sign, and that sign was a, a sign of a child to be born. Uh, but that sign was now to be proclaimed to to all the people of, of Israel, to, to Judah in the southern part of, of the country, and also to the northern part, the, the northern tribes of Israel. Of Israel. And, and, and in response to, to that message, we recognize that God told Isaiah to say, do not walk in the ways of this people. Don't fear what they fear. Instead, fear me. Fear God. And, and God gave Isaiah reasons why he can trust the Lord. And, and Isaiah responded in chapter 8 in this beautiful way. He said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, God gives Isaiah, and, and Isaiah tells us why Isaiah is able to trust in the Lord, why Isaiah is able to wait on the Lord, why Isaiah is able to hope in the Lord, because of what God promised to do. This morning we are looking at, a, at this particular passage, and notice there's a contrast There is a contrast between what the people of the land who will continue to not trust in the Lord, who will continue to rely in their own ways, what will happen to them? Look at at chapter 8, verses, um, particularly verse 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is what will happen to the land of God's people who, who who, because they have continued to, to trust their own ways, they have continued to rebel against the Lord, turn His back, their backs against Him. Darkness, gloom, distress, rage. But, chapter 9, begins with a very important word. And that word is, but. Don't you love the word, but? It's an important word. Look at how how chapter 9 begins. But there will be no gloom for he who is in anguish. For her who, who was in anguish. Our text this morning, is unpacking this contrast between what, what happened to Israel, what happened to God's people, and what, pro, what God promises to do for His people. It's a big change from, from anguish to no more gloom. It's a change from darkness to light. So 
this passage will unpack how this change will take place. And we'll look at a few points about this change, how, how this change will be unpacked. But let's look at the first point about this change from, from anguish to no gloom, from, from darkness to light. Notice how this change, the first point is this, the change from darkness to light is radical. The change from darkness to light is radical. Notice how this change is described in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In verse 1, God's people were described as being in anguish, suffering extreme pain, grief, loss. In Isaiah's generation, this was caused by the fact that the Assyrians have invaded the land. But their anguish not, was not simply emotional, was not simply physical. In verse 2, we, are, we recognize that their anguish is caused by the walking in darkness. They are walking in darkness. Notice also that their darkness is described as deep. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. In other words, the darkness has been deep, but the light that God promised to shine on them is also described as great. The big contrast between a deep darkness and a great light leads us to see that the change God promised will be radical. It will be entirely opposite of what they have experienced. Now, what makes this darkness more piercing is that in Isaiah's time, the ones who are thrown into the darkness are the very people of God. The darkness is over the land that God has given His people. Those who have received God's Word, those who have received God's revelation, those who have received land from God, those who have seen God work in their history in miraculous ways, they are the ones who are now thrown into deep darkness. Why? Because they have refused to acknowledge God. They have refused to listen to Him. They have refused to trust in Him. They have refused to follow Him. They have turned their backs on Him. The theme of of darkness and gloom shows up again in Isaiah 59 later towards the end of the book. Here's how, how later this whole theme shows up again. It says in Isaiah 59, 8 through 13, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does, does not overtake us. We hoped for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. That's what the people recognize. A few verses later, why does this happen? He, it says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Walking in darkness is the result of choosing to rebel against our Creator it is the result of turning our backs to God. This is true, my dear friends, not only for the Israelites. This is true for any human being. In Romans 1:21, Paul says this about all humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkness as Scripture speaks of is not physical darkness. It's a darkness of the heart. Often in the Bible, darkness is, is, is referring to the spiritual darkness. To be in spiritual darkness means that people can no longer see clearly what is spiritually true. Now, they might perceive a lot of things in the physical world. They might be very wise. They might have a lot of knowledge. They might be very wise in, in, in degrees or wise in human wisdom, but they cannot perceive spiritual realities. And if they have an, an interest in spiritual things, they don't necessarily run to the true God, but they would rather run to that which they find interesting or spiritually satisfying. How often people, even today, might be satisfied with some sort of spiritual experience as long as it satisfies them. As long as they think it's enough. As long as they think it's what they need. Friends, that could just be spiritual darkness. The people of Israel were greatly interested in spiritual things. They were inquiring of spiritual people. But they were the wrong spiritual things. The wrong spiritual people. They would be going to the magicians. They'd be going to people who, who were able to speak to the dead. They were spiritual things. It was just that they were the spiritual things of darkness. Their problem was that they were interested in anything other than the true God who revealed himself to them. That's darkness. That's darkness. To be interested in anything other than God. To be in darkness is to lack the ability to discern between what is God's way and our own ways. Friends, this is the condition of anyone who ignores God or anyone who refuses God. But in God's goodness, in His grace, God promised that He will not let His people remain in that deep darkness forever. And this is where the word but shows up. God promised to dispel the deep darkness by shining light on them. And just as their darkness has been deep, so also the light shining on them is described as a great light. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now the theme of darkness and light appears elsewhere in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42 verse 16, God says this, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. Friends, God is committed to turn the darkness of his people into light. God says, these are the things I will do. I do not forsake them. In other words, God promised not to leave his people in darkness forever. God told Isaiah that this will be his work, God's work to bring them out of darkness. Now, question is, did God ever fulfill his promise? God, through Isaiah, promised this about 700 years B.C. Did God do this? Did God keep his promise? In Matthew chapter 4, 
verse 12 through 16. Here's a passage that we get from Matthew about Jesus. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephali. Now, isn't this amazing that Jesus began preaching and his, his preaching ministry not in Judea where he was born. He didn't start preaching in Bethlehem. He didn't start preaching in Jerusalem. He began preaching his ministry by crossing the country to the most northern tribes of Israel, to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These territories were the most mixed uh, with Gentiles uh, at the time of Jesus. Why would Jesus start his preaching ministry by crossing the country all the way to the furthest, most northern parts of Israel? Well, notice what Matthew says in verses 14 and 16. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, shadow and in, in the region, shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus started his ministry in the northern part of Israel, in the most Gentile territory of Israel, so that he could fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Why was the tribe of Zebulun, why was the tribe of Nephtali named out of all the tribes of, of Israel? Because they were the most northern tribes. You say, why does that matter? Well, here's why that matters. When Israel, when the northern tribes were first attacked by Assyria, the first two tribes who fell were Zebulun and Naphtali. And because they were on the outskirts of the tribes of Israel, they were the most, if you will, contaminated with Gentile influence. It is amazing, my dear friends, that Jesus, when he comes into the world as the light of the world, he begins his preaching ministry, and for the first time, that light starts shining, not in Judea, not in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. It starts in the very place where darkness hit the first and the hardest, in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. Why? Because God wanted to be sure that the people who walked in the thickest of darkness would be the ones who would get to see the light shining brightest, the first. That's the gracious kindness of God. Friends, there's no darkness deep enough that cannot be reached by the bright shining light of Jesus. It's amazing how the Gospel of John presents Jesus coming to the world the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, Christ not only brings the light into the world, Christ is the light that has come into the world. And he has come into the world so that those who repent of their sins and trust in him would not remain in darkness John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me 
may not remain in darkness. Oh, friends, God fulfilled his promise that the people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And the first ones to benefit from the light of Christ were the very first were the ones who were first hit by it and the ones who were most deeply entrenched in it. Oh, friends, God's light continues to be shining every time the gospel is proclaimed. Even today, even now, if there's any people who are still in darkness, who are still in ignorance of God, who are ignorant of His ways, who are still in rebellion against Him, the good news of Jesus is that Christ is able to dispel the darkness and to call you out of the darkness into God's marvelous light. How? How is it? How does that happen in you? How does that happen in people today? The same way it happened when Jesus first preached. The first message, the first sentence, the the summary of what Jesus preached in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how the gospel, this is how the light of Jesus penetrates the darkness. When people hear the gospel, the truth about Jesus, when they repent and turn to him and trust in him. And anyone who hears these words and trusts in Jesus for their salvation can receive the light of God. Friends, even now, if you hear these words, if you're not a believer, if you hear these words and recognize that you are ignorant of God, if you recognize that you you do not know this God, if you recognize that you have been far from God, but if you'd like to turn to Him, to turn away from your darkness, from your ignorance, from your rebellion, and turn to Jesus, the light of God can be yours. It is a radical change. It is a radical change from deep darkness to true light. But let's go back to Isaiah. The second point about this passage, not only is this change from darkness to light radical. The second thing we see is that the results of seeing the light are rebuilding and rejoicing. The results of seeing the light are rebuilding and rejoicing. The coming of the light had the following effect on God's people. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. This means that when God's people have seen the light, It is not merely an individualistic experience. It's not merely a private experience. No, in seeing the light that God has shone on His people, God is rebuilding His people. They have been devastated. They have been wiped out. God is now rebuilding His people. Friends, God's salvation is personal, but it's never private. That's why a significant aspect of of seeing the light and walking in the light is what we do together as God's people. How often I hear people say, my religion is my private thing. Have you heard people say that? I don't want to talk about religion, that's just my private thing. Friends, such an impression is already a red flag of the darkness of your own religion. That kind of religion that's just private, just for you, is dark. The light that God shines is corporate. The, God, the light that God shines involves not just 
you as an individual, leaving you in your own individualistic sin. It's a corporate experience. God is multiplying the nation. God is rebuilding his people. Oh, friends, that's why the light of God, when people live in the light of God, they love one another. They are open to talk about what they believe in. They're open to hear other people talk about the light of God. But the second thing that God does, a result of seeing the light, not only rebuilding, but it's also rejoicing. Look at verse 3. You have increased its joy for the people who see the light of God shining on them. They no longer have to search for joy because God is increasing their joy. Notice two illustrations of the joy that people will have. It's they will rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now, we don't, we don't do harvest these days, not in Austin. Perhaps if you live out in the country, you, you have that experience of harvesting, what you have worked for a whole year. But imagine, imagine instead of a harvest, imagine, imagine if you got your paycheck for the whole year, not every two weeks. Imagine if you got it once a year. Imagine if your paycheck came only once a year for the whole year. Would you be glad when that day comes? Can you imagine the joy you have? I mean, you rejoice even when you get your two weeks paycheck, don't you? Right? Come on. You're happy. Imagine getting that for a whole year. Imagine that joy. That's the kind of joy that God gives to his people. It's an incredible joy. And then he goes on. A second illustration is uh, they rejoice as with those who divide the spoil. Now, this is, this is an illustration. Uh, this is an illustration about people who are in a battle, and they have won. And now they have spoil to divide. Oh, friends, recognize that when God gives joy to his people, it is a joy compared to those who are victorious, to those who, who have won the battle. We will see the, the picture of, 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 of war in verses 4 through, through 6 again. But we are told that the joy God increases among his people, it's a joy of those who conquer. Does this mean that Christians don't go through difficult times? Or that somehow the Christian life will be full of joy all the time? No. Two weeks ago we heard a great sermon on Psalm 88, speaking of the believer's experience of pain and suffering. But nevertheless... God, who shines a great light on his people, the people who are walking in darkness, is describing, described now as being a God who increases the joy of his people. God is a source that increases our joy. But notice also the reasons for seeing the light and for rejoicing. Why would people rejoice this way? Why would people rejoice as, as with those who are at the harvest time? Why would people rejoice as those who are winning in battle? as those who divide the spoil. Well, there's something very, of three reasons, very important, and the rest of our passage will deal with this three reasons of why people are seeing the light and why people are rejoicing with this exuberant joy. Notice in verses 4, 5, and 6, three times these verses start with the word for. Do you see them? There are three reasons why people are rejoicing this way. The first one is, this is 
I'm at point three, reasons for seeing the light and reasons for rejoicing. There's going to be three reasons, three subpoints in here. God will break the burden and the oppression. Notice in verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. But there's something else in this verse. The good news is not merely that God will break the burden and the oppression. The good news is that God will do it without any human help. You say, where do we get that from? Well, the point of the analogy, as in the day of Midian. Remember the story of Midian? Well, of, of, of Gideon fighting on God's behalf against the army of Midian? The story of, of, of Gideon is given to us in the book of Judges. And we see at one point, God calls Gideon out and says, I want you to go and uh, fight against the Midianites. And Mid, uh, Gideon gets an army, 32,000 men in the army to fight against the Midianites. And God says, the army is too big. And God says that about a few times. God cuts down the army, not in half. Not 10 times. Not even 50 times. God cuts down the army 100 times. From 32,000 to 300 men. And God gives him the following instruction. You're going to fight against the Midianites. And here's what you're going to use to fight. Some trumpets and some jars. Go to battle. Would you like to go in that battle? But the point was, that actually, when Gideon gave the instructions, it says, when we get to the Midianites, the battle line, their camp, all you have to do is blow the trumpet and break the jar. That's it. God did the rest. The Israelites did not even have to raise a sword. God won the battle without the Israelites being in the battle. They were just on the sidelines watching how God was going to kill the Midianites and wipe them out entirely. When, when that illustration is brought here, when that analogy is brought here, you have, you have the yoke of the burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. It is saying, you have done it without involving us in the battle. That's the point, dear friends. That's why they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing as, as though they, they've won, and they have won. But they didn't have to fight for it. That's the amazing, that's the amazing promise. Oh, friends, in this way, we see an anticipation of the gospel itself. That God is overcoming the enemy, our greatest enemy. The greatest oppression, the greatest burden. And we don't have to move a finger to fight in that battle. God will overcome the enemy. The second truth we see, the second reason why, we, why these people are able to rejoice as if, as if they're, they're, they're dividing the spoil is because God will put an end to the possibility of conflict. Notice in verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. 
It's not simply that the oppression and the yoke will be broken. It's that God will put an end to the possibility of war, to the possibility of conflict. Friends, mankind is seeking these days all kinds of ways to put an end to war. But the way we do it is by building up more, more artillery, more war equipment so that we can keep peace. The way God does it is by destroying it. Even if we could put an end to tragic wars, can we eradicate the possibility of war? No. If we learn the skills for conflict management so that we could live in peace with one another, can we eradicate the possibility of conflict from our hearts? No. But God can. God can put an end not only to war. God can put an end to the possibility of war and conflict. The imagery of burning every boot of the enemy's warrior and every garment makes another point. In order for God to break the oppression against his people, he must overcome the enemy. In order for God to liberate his people from their oppression, he must break the enemy and overcome the enemy. There's no rescue from oppression without overcoming the oppressor. That's why in the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus came, he proclaimed the gospel, but he did also something else. He did some miracles. And the purpose of his miracles were not simply to impress people. The purpose of the miracles were not simply to gather a crowd around him. The purpose of the miracles were not simply to, to, uh, to get people to, to follow him. The purpose of the miracles was that Jesus could show that he is coming to overcome the enemy. So when he spoke to a man who was demon-possessed, and all it took for Jesus was, get out of him. Jesus came to overcome the enemy, to show that he's stronger than the enemy who was possessing mankind. When Jesus faced people who were sick, and one time the Roman centurion comes to him and says, Lord, would you come and, and heal my servant? And, and Jesus uh, wants to come, and the Roman sa- soldier says, you don't have to come, just say a word. He believed that the word of Jesus had power to speak to disease and make that disease flee. Jesus came to show that he has power to overcome that which was oppressing humanity. When Jesus was at a, at, a, at, a, at a friend's tomb, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus wants to raise him up. All Jesus has to do is to say, Lazarus, come out. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't just raising Lazarus from the dead. He was showing that he has power to overcome the very enemies that humanity is in bondage to. And all of those were signs, anticipations of the greatest, of the greatest overcoming that Jesus would overcome when he is put in a tomb after being crucified on a cross. When he himself has no more, if you will, power to speak because he's dead, he's, he's laid in a tomb, and yet, God, three days later, raised him from the dead to show that he indeed is powerful to overcome the enemy. Friends, the reason why Jesus can save us is because Jesus has conquered the enemy that is keeping us in bondage. 
There is no rescue without first overcoming the oppressor. There's no salvation without first breaking the enemy's war equipment, if you will. All that Jesus has done in his coming, preaching, working power to show that he is able to rescue because he has overcome the enemy. Finally, the final reason why the people of God are able to rejoice with an explicable joy is because there's a third four. Verse 6, a child will be born and a son will be given. And this is the most amazing part of our passage. You see a people threatened by a foreign oppressor, Assyria. You see a land devastated by a, an incredible army that came to swipe the land. And what is God's solution to the people who are oppressed in darkness, in gloom, held captive? What is God's solution? Not an army, but a baby. The most helpless state any human being can be in is a baby. Can't even feed himself. Can't walk. Can't protect himself. God promised that he will enact the deliverance by giving his people a child. A baby. A son. But there's something absolutely unusual about this child. First of all, he's got some very interesting names. Now, we've already seen Isaiah likes interesting names. We've seen that already, right? But here are some interesting names about this child, and his names tell us who he is, what he's about. Look at, look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This title could be literally a wonder of a counselor. In Isaiah 28, 29, this is how God, the Lord of hosts, is described. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Friends, this is what his people have refused in the past. They refused to take counsel from God. They would rather listen to the crowds. They would rather listen to what everyone else was doing than listen to God. Why? Because they did not consider God's counsel to be wonderful. I wonder if you do. I wonder if you do. God promised to give his people a baby who would be a wonderful counselor so that they could walk in his counsel. Walking in the light is walking in his counsel. But this, this child is more than a counselor. He's a mighty God. Wow! How can a human child be also called mighty God? Friends, this is what makes this child so, so different than any other child born of mankind. In chapter 10, God himself is described as a mighty God. But here this child is described in this way. Friend, in the Quran, Jesus is a mere prophet. In the Bible, Jesus is God. He is a mighty God. The reason why he can win the battle for his people, the reason why he can do it alone without requiring any of our help, is because he is mighty God. But then look at the next one. He's everlasting father. Even before this child is born, he receives the name of being everlasting father because he will act 
as a father towards his people. He will act with care and protection for his people. He really will be their patriarch. He really will be their father. And his role as a father will have no end. Then he's a prince of peace. The word for prince could also be ruler. This child will be a ruler, but his rule will not be oppressive. His rule will be peaceful. His yoke will be light. His reign will be a reign of peace. That's why Christians are to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, because our prince is a prince of peace. And the life of the church should be a life where the people of God live in peace with one another. Each of these four names describe the Son of God and what kind of Son God would send to His people to free them from their oppression. But notice what will be on the shoulders of His Son. Before we look at what will be on the shoulders of the Son, it's, it's helpful to remember what were on the shoulders of the people of God. It was a rod of oppression. It was a staff of bondage. That's, what, that's what, what was on the shoulders of God's people. And what will be placed on the shoulders of the Son? The government. Now, don't think here government agencies like we have today. Don't think here politicians and their empty campaign promises. Don't think here of government control that keeps, you know, keeps freedom away from you. This is the reign of the Prince of Peace. This is the reign of the one who brings true freedom. This is the reign of the one who brings life. This is the, one, the reign of the one who is the light of the world. Of his reign, there'll be no end. He will reign with justice. He will reign with righteousness. He not only establishes the kingdom, but he also upholds it with justice and righteousness. So, dear friends, when we as Christians care about what is right in the sight of God, when we keep one another, one another accountable of God's ways, we do it not because we want to be socially conservative. That's not why we want to do it. We want to do it because our life together as a church is a manifestation of the reign of this prince of peace who establishes his kingdom and upholds it with justice and righteousness. That's why we care about righteousness. And we pursue what is right in the sight of God, recognizing that our righteousness does not come from us. Our righteousness comes from Him who is a King of righteousness. But notice, lastly, all this. Who will accomplish all this? Who will take the, 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 the staff of oppression that was on, on God's people's shoulders and replace it with a different kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and, and justice. Who will do all this? Look at how verse 7 ends this passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, friends, finding the light, escaping the darkness, is not the result of change. It's not the result of luck. It's not the result of human searching and human ingenuity. It is not the result of human effort, nor the result of human strategy, nor the result of human merit. The one who causes this change from darkness to light is God. The same God who has chastised his people, the same God who has punished his people from, 
for their sin is the same God who will bring glory to his people and will bring them into a glorious experience. Friends, today we have taken this close look at why Isaiah and his disciples could look at their situation of darkness and hope in the Lord, why they could wait for the Lord. It's because the Lord has promised to do it. Friends, the Lord has done it in the coming of Jesus. And right now, that kingdom continues to increase. One day, that kingdom will be fully manifested. Until that day comes, God's people, the citizens of that kingdom, are called to take the gospel of peace because the only way this kingdom will increase is by the proclamation of the message of peace. And that message of peace has been entrusted to us. We declare it to you, calling any of you, if you're still out in the kingdom of darkness, come to the kingdom of light. May God work in our hearts and may God make us agents of his peace and agents of his light. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you that you are a God who indeed is able to do what is humanly impossible, to bring out of deep darkness people for your sake so they would see the light. Father, help us to respond to that light and help us to live in that light. We pray that the light of Christ will continue to shine in our own hearts, in this congregation, in our city, in our world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.